when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Corporations are treated like people, and people are treated like things. They promote legislation that attacks voting rights, the poor, LGBT citizens, the immigrant community, and civil rights that are lewd, mean-spirited, and fundamentally contrary to what our democracy is supposed to be. Let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM. We are broadcasting live from the Three Keys at the Ace Hotel. This is Resistance Radio. And uh, my name is Mark Allendary. With me, as always, is Kenny Francis. Hello, Kenny. Hey, y'all. And hello, everybody here at the Three Keys. Yay to all of you guys for coming and braving the rain. We have <laughs> a... Every single time we do this, it rains. And it not just rains. It rains right before... We go on, like, where it's right when people are deciding, like, am I going to get in the car and actually go? Just, right. Now, or I just expect it to rain every month now. Or am I going to just stay home and listen to it on the radio? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I almost stayed home and listened to it on the radio, and I was like, oh, wait, I can't do that. <laughs> I'm on the show. So it really is a pleasure uh, to uh, have y'all uh, tuning in as we are uh, getting ready to have another great conversation that I think uh, will be uh, somewhat stimulating. I know that Kenny had a couple words uh, to say prior yeah, just a couple things. So one, um, thank you to Ace Hotel for um, providing this space for us and letting us do this. Um, it's a partnership that we so far has been, I think, very fruitful for both of us. Um, I want to preemptively thank our guest, Ms. Ashton Berry, for joining us today. We're going to introduce her in a second. Um, I also want to remind folks that you can find this episode when we post it in all episodes of our podcast by searching Resistance Radio New Orleans on iTunes or Google Play. Um, and the last thing I wanted to say is a little bit of a disclaimer um, in case folks missed it when we were promoting this last week. Uh, the conversation that we're about to have with Ashton is about the hospitality industry 
in New Orleans and, and also just like greater in the country. And specifically, we're having a conversation about the culture of abuse that per, uh, persistently exists in those spaces. Um, and we just wanted to put a disclaimer that we realized that for some folks, this conversation might be triggering or upsetting. And so before we jumped in, we wanted to make sure to give you a chance to opt out if you so choose and hope that you rejoin us in the future. Um, and with that, I'm excited to get started and jump in. Um, and so like I was saying, our guest today is we have Ms. Ashton Berry. She is a hospitality rights activist and an all around amazing person that I've gotten the pleasure to know a little bit. Um, and I'm gonna let her introduce herself. Welcome Ashton. Hello, Can, am I loud enough? Yeah? Yeah. You would like me to be louder? All right, I'm Ashton Berry. Um, I wear a lot of different hats. Most people have uh, grown to know me as Ashton Berry food and beverage activist. Um, what does that mean? It means that I deal with how do I create access, equity, um, and more importantly, I'm a preventionist, I like to tell people, um, meaning that I try to create models that prevent things before they happen. Um, so how can we set up structures and systems and businesses to prevent abuse? before they happen or before they escalate? How can we prevent um, people from not getting hired or prevent spaces that look homogenous by instituting operational models that help support um, inclusivity from the foundation? Um, yeah, my background, I actually used to manage here. I used to manage Three Crees Lobby. I was the bar manager here, um, moved up. And then I went to New York and I worked on opening two great places on a consulting contract, Tokyo Record Bar and Air Champagne Parlor. And I, again, I do a lot of different things. I just launched a business called Radical Exchange, which is an experiential events company um, that focuses on how to market to micro demographics. Um, yeah. Did that so, sum it up? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess my only other question, do you sleep? <laughs> I do, I do, I do. People find that found that title really funny. There was an article that came out recently. It was like, "Does Ashton Berry even sleep?" I, I think, do. I think that's a good question. I do, I do sleep. Uh, there's a lot of time to sleep on flights. <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot of time to there's a lot of time to sleep and not have naps. I've learned that if you get up really, really early and you do your work, everybody else gets into the office around nine or ten. You can sleep to about one p.m. because they're still getting through their day and wake up and still be like a normal uh, person. So I've got I've got like a great schedule going right now. So it's right. just like it's, it's, it's like the two a.m. Yeah, to four a.m. Yeah, sleep. Yeah, right? yeah, okay. so now we know the secrets. Here. Yeah. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, so. no problem. Um, before we jump in, the other thing I wanted to say is if you have questions, if you're listening and you have questions for Ashton, we always try to leave time at the end to get a few questions from the crowd. So if you'd like to ask a question of Ashton as you listen to the conversation, you can follow um, WHIVFM on Twitter and send us the question there. And, um, oh, hash, sorry, hashtag WHIVFM. Um, Movement oh, Mondays. Now it's you can send it to hashtag Movement Mondays on Twitter and we will get them, and then we will ask them. Now That's right, yes. Cool. Com community radio at its best. Yes. And also, one last thing before we get started, uh, that uh, Kenny and I uh, wrote questions together that we are going to then be talking to you about and asking. I'm just okay. saying that we just prepared questions. I'm about to say, yeah, I mean, that's generally how it goes. Well, because Kenny, <laughs> Kenny's going to be reading the questions, so I was just trying to make the point that we pre- 
We, so just, we came up with It was a collaborative yeah, effort. So, it was a collab- yeah, so, th- so this is the first time that Mark Allen actually prepared for the show, so he just wanted to make sure that everyone knew that he <laughs> thought about this before we got up here. And by prepared, yeah, that's it. Let's just be clear that <laughs> we're on air right now because of my preparation, but that's fine. <laughs> anyway, let's get into it. Yes. Um, so first question, and I think this is a good place to ground us, ground us in, is how do we, def- when we talk about hospitality, how do we define that? Like, what, what is that inclusive of? Um, I think that this is one of the biggest issues in the hospitality industry as a whole is that we haven't defined what hospitality is and what that means as a national conversation and what that means as a local conversation. So most people, when they consider hospitality, it's inclusive of restaurants, bars, cafes, hotels, um, would be your general, I would say, your base foundational of what is hospitality-centric businesses. Um, but I think that in a city like New Orleans, which is based off of hospitality, you leave out the fact that those places are just the root, and then all of your other things like you know, Uber and Lyft essentially are hospitality services, right? They function for the act mostly in this city to get people to spaces where they spend money on other services. Um, So I think that that's actually one of the places that we really need to concentrate on in the hospitality industry is really defining who we are because if we wanna make changes, seismic changes, Mm -hmm. right? We're gonna need to have really clear definitions about who we are as an industry. Um, So, but yes, hospitality industry in general means hotel, restaurant, bars, cafes. Gotcha, and that, that makes sense where it would be, you can't build an inclusive movement or change if you don't know, or if you're not If you can't define it. You know, if you look at every, you know, if you look in the tech world, there are different definitions for every level. You know what I mean? There's, Google isn't in the same conversation as a small startup, right? There's a a difference because they have different needs. Um, And I think right now what's happening is that, you know, if we wanted to go to a political side, all of the legislation, when you see these articles that are talking about in the restaurant industry and thing, they're talking about these huge corporate chains, right? Um, Which, and most cities don't operate. Like New Orleans isn't a huge corporate chain city. Yeah. Um, another city that is a great example of this is Chicago. Chicago is also not a huge corporate chain city. So what happens when you want to start a national dialogue about um, systemic issues in our industry, but everything that's based, all the research is based, and all the conversations are based off of corporate entities? that makes sense? Yeah, okay. yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's also, it also a great segue into what my next question was in talking about systemic issues. So what we're here to talk about is the culture of abuse that mm-hmm. persistently exists in, sp- in these spaces. Um, and before we sort of like jump into that, I wanted to sort of def- have us def- go off of like a shared definition of when we're talking about abuse, what are we talking about? Yeah, so level setting. So a lot of people, because of uh, the Me Too movement that came out, Immediately when they think of abuse, they start thinking of sexual assault and harassment, which is certainly a part of abuse. Um, I wanna make it clear to everybody who's listening right now, abuse is a scale. It is a not a finite place or a finite action. It is certainly a scale. Um, and I think it includes verbal and emotional abuse. It includes physical abuse. But more importantly, which I really wanna talk about today, is uh, while you see all of those things in the hospitality industry, one of the reasons why abuse um, is so fragrant, f- flagrant, flake, flake, what flagrant. Flagrant. You got it. You okay. Got it. And uh, probably also fragrant. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, yeah. is that the smell? Um, no. Yeah. 
Um, one of the reasons why it is in the hospitality industry is specifically, which is one of the most important um, forms of abuse that we do not talk about, is because of financial abuse. Um, and the reason why it's really important for everybody to note this is because while every, every business structure there could be financial abuse. Why it's specifically important in the hospitality industry is because it is a transparent transaction. When the customer comes in to buy a coffee, they are aware that they are buying a coffee, paying this amount of money for the coffee, and being able to tip you based on their feelings of that service interaction. It's transparent, if that makes sense. Um, and I think it's really important to know that transparency because it's one of the reasons why people don't speak up in our industry when abuse happens, whether it be verbal or whether it be escalate to physical. Right, and, and uh, just a couple things there, a couple things to say there, and adding on to that is uh, one, and, and, and maybe this is something we can talk about later or wrap around, but one of the forms of abuse is I think, at least in terms of um, economic abuse, is the fact that the, the incredibly low pay that is paid toward servers and the fact that we live in this tip-based uh, uh, I think that that's a that, larger, think, right, yeah. a much larger conversation. Conversation because but that's I, not true for all spaces. And this is why it's really important that we start defining because right now what the media wants to harp on is this conversation about tipping. And I, I do think that tipping is problematic. What I'm not comfortable with is the idea of tear down tipping when we have no infrastructures in place on how people who survive off of that and live off that. And, and, and I'm not, and, and, no and it's way. there. But right. I think that low wages, the conversation about the low wages that people make is not universally true. And, and, and that's the conversation we need to be having, right? Like that changes from community to community and sometimes from restaurant to restaurants. There are small businesses in this city who are paying their people a base pay of seven, eight dollars an hour. They don't have to. They could pay them two dollars an hour. And they pay them on average that, one, to help them take care of taxes, two, to help thing. And look, eight dollars doesn't seem like a lot, but again, these are people who make on average a shift 200 to 250 dollars, right? And so the tipping conversation is something we could come back to because I am super passionate about it because a lot of, the people are making blanket statements, and this is this goes back to the right. Yeah. But to be clear, I was just referring to. I just think that it's somewhat offensive that in our society that the uh, restaurant owners uh, or hospitality folks have shifted wages onto us as consumers, whereas in other employment situations, anybody who would work for somebody has to work right. for. Well, I think that that's wage. a conversation about, and I want to be very clear because when you say shifted, it didn't shift. And so it's historically been like that. We okay. need to talk about the history of tipping. Sure. Tipping came because white people didn't want to have to pay black people full wages. So we can't talk about it shifted. What shifted is that white people now are predominantly in these spaces, and now this is considered a valuable job. So we need to be very clear about that, that no one even cared about that people were getting low wages until the people that they were paying suddenly looked like them. That's, and, and, you know, and that's a very important conversation, yeah. and I yeah. didn't even yeah. so, realize we were, and I mean, in that's a, a very, in a place very like New Orleans, we need to be very, very clear about that. And we yes. also need to be very clear about the fact that when we make statements of it's not fair to put it on the consumer, the consumer made that choice by stating that they weren't going to visit frequent support businesses that were going to make them pay to properly pay people of color. 
and women. And let's also be clear that even now in this country and even now in New Orleans, most of the people who work in hospitality are women of color. Yeah, and this is something that I, if, if you don't mind me asking, Kenny, if we can have you back on air to give <laughs> yeah. us more of a history about this in particular, because yeah. this is something that I was, I opened that door and did not realize what well, was behind and, and that door. And it's also just like a, such a layered conversation because when you start talking about, you know, they're putting the labor on the consumer, you know, the labor isn't just from the servers in the back of the house in the physical restaurant. It starts at the conversation about food justice. It starts well, talking about the conversation yeah, about who's course. picking our absolutely. food yes, and the yes, lack of yes, autonomy there, and yes. then it just works their way up. So yes. if we want to have a real conversation, the conversation needs to extend not just to hospitality. It needs to extend to our grocery stores, right? It needs to extend to our legislation, and that's a much larger conversation, and it's a much more – I want to say for anybody who's listening to this, we're supposed to be talking about abuse, but hospitality is political. Food is political, and if you go to a bar and you pay for something and you don't think that it's a political act, I want to tell you, you are absolutely wrong because you are buying into an ecosystem. And one that's larger than just that bar, larger than just the city, and actually spans internationally. And there's also a conversation about domestic work, which is a whole nother, you know, rabbit yeah. hole. Sorry. So I guess what we're saying <laughs> is, that, is what we're saying is that <laughs> <laughs> with, with your permission, this is the start of a series. Sure. Like, right, this sure. sounds like, yeah. I sure. If yeah. you're tuning in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel in the Three Keys room. Can we get a little bit of yay? Yeah, all right. Thank you, guys. My name is Mark Allendary. With me is Kenny Francis. And as you can tell, we are talking to uh, Miss Ashton Berry, who is a hospitality activist? Yeah, you said that's pre fine. Preventionist? Yeah, preventionist. Which I, I mean, think is a great... Activist or I like preventionist because I'm really trying to get out of first responder advocate work um, because I just think that there are people who are so much more, that is their passion, that is their skill set. And I, what I'm more interested in figuring out is how on the other side can I assist them so that their workload isn't as heavy because a lot of the things that they are dealing with are absolutely preventable. Um, and there's multiple entry points to when they were preventable. Absolutely. So sort of to like reground us in the conversation. Sorry, that we were I trying. know, we did. No, I'm sorry, I, actually, I did I, that. I'm I, sorry. Actually, I actually blame him. Yes, <laughs> of course. It's so hard to keep him focused. <laughs> um, so, so a conversation that you and I sort of started having that sort of led to us wanting to do this is how does an abusive culture contribute to the lack of equity that we see in representation and leadership in the industry? And how does that contribute to the lack of awareness that workers have on what their rights are and how to advocate for them? So I know we've all probably, even if you're in the hospitality industry or not, have heard the jokes or the stereotypes about the chef who throws plates, who throws chairs, who cusses his back of the house out, or his servers. Everybody in the room, yeah, we've heard this before. Um, I would TV just, shows about it. Yeah, and the fact of the matter is it's not an exaggeration. Like, it's not. Like, everybody can laugh at it and just be like, oh, that's only a couple of places. But, like, I remember the first high-end restaurant I worked at making a very simple mistake being called, like, while on the floor, loud enough that, like, everybody on the floor, including guests, could hear a chef calling me and getting cursed out. And then being asked to go back on the floor and, like, do my job and not be upset. And, of course, I didn't cry because I was from the south side of Chicago. So you ain't cussing me out harder than my mama did. So it's all good. <laughs> but, like, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, like, for some people, how, many, how much talent have we dismissed? How much talent have we lost 
from that type of a behavior, from this idea that you need to be hazed to be appreciated in your workplace. And this lame ass, I'm sorry, can I cuss? No. Just move on. If, if, okay. you, if you curse, he's paying the fines. Okay. So okay. I'm personally fine with it. Okay, so I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna attempt not to cuss. Um, Thank you. Uh, uh, you he's know, a doctor, he'll be fine. It's really problematic that the excuse that has continued to come up is, well, it was a different age. Well, that's how I came up in ranks. Well, that's how it's always been. Um, and just like there's intergenerational trauma, there is also, also intergenerational patterns of abuse. And if you think of the hospitality industry as a family, that's essentially what we've done. And we've compounded that by not only, <clears throat> we've compound, the reason why it's compounded and the reason why we find this being such a prevalent thing is not only is it seeped through the language, it's seeped through the hierarchical structure. So back of the house is built much like the military, right? Where the person who is above you has all say, right? It's, there's, there's no democracy in it. Chef, chef is what chef says, chef goes. And there's some people who choose not to run their kitchens like that, and that's amazing. There's a lot of people who still choose to run their kitchens like that. And when you run your kitchen in a way where the communication pattern, well, let's one talk about this. One of the things that I focus on is communication. And when you run any business where all communication goes to one person and they have the carte blanche to say yes or no, you set up a system where A, you aren't getting a variety of information about what's going on in your space. B, you set it up so that when the first person gets deterred from trying to bring something that's difficult to you, you've already made a statement with how every other person will try or attempt to approach you about that. And most of the ways hospitality businesses are set up is that one or two people control everything. Even in corporate companies, you walk into an Applebee's and the GM is the end all be all to the stop. Unless it's something serious, then HR gets involved. And this is where I start thinking that um, prevention models are really important. Did I answer the question? Did I answer the question? Kind of. <laughs> okay, go. I, well, I think the difficult part is that, like, like you said, that so much of this is such generational problems that have consisted. And just listening to you talk about it, I think one of the things you said to me off air, which it's still blowing my mind as I sit here, is you said that these spaces, these spaces have been so abusive for so long that it's actually surprising to find one that is not abusive where it's like it's hard to even find like a good example yeah. of a so i'm probably gonna piss a lot of people off right now but um in our industry but specifically in new orleans i want to state that the amount of emails i get from employees there's not one restaurant group in new orleans that i don't have at least 10 emails from your employees talking about abuse in your space and I'm not talking about, oh, someone called me a bitch today. I'm talking about, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're great. Don't worry. Um, that's, not a, one, that's not one of the seven. Okay, so. okay. Um, but Again, he's paying the fines, I, so we're not worried about it. But it, I'm talking about, you know, really detailed accounts of, like, severe harassment. Yeah. From And almost always, it's from another person. It's from a person in power. Um, and... Abuse is the norm in the hospitality industry, and I'm sorry to say it. Um, I feel like 
the Besh article came out about Besh and the 22, I believe it was 22 women, who came forward about sexual assault and harassment, um, mostly harassment, and the culture of harassment. And I felt like New Orleans was like, okay, we had our Me Too movement done. And it was like, but what you're not being honest about is that Besh is one of the good old boys. And there's a lot of other good old boys sitting in this city, sitting real pretty, and just were smart enough not to send text messages and stuff and leave a paper trail. And maybe even have an HR department. You know, a lot of them <laughs> still don't. You know, you know, you're saying that as like a smart like, and maybe even have an HR department, but a lot of them didn't get HR departments until that happened to Besh. Yeah. So like, Which let's also really be remarkable. clear about that yeah. because they didn't either. Right. No, because that also speaks to the level of privilege that they have enjoyed all this time. Yeah, and I want to be. Did, they felt like they were beyond reproach. Yeah. And I, I want to be honest that it's not just gender violence in New Orleans. It's racial violence, right? I, you know, I, I can't. Imagine, yeah. I can't tell you how many people are used to being called something derogatory that is connected to their race in kitchens in this city, and it's a normal thing. And if you want to be a line cook, it is part of the hazing to get places, and you can't. And you can't specifically for so many of the black men that I talk to. It is like you can't be sensitive about it if you want to reach a leadership position. Yeah. And so what it does, it, it one, is emo it's an emotional strain, right, on the person. You're asking why a person isn't chipper or happy when they're working in your space, but you've provided a space that is emotionally unsafe and where they're always up on guard, and they have to be on guard because if someone were to say something to them that made them feel unsafe or upset and they responded in anger, they'd also be coupled with the implicit bias that every time that they raise their voice or get accept or even sound excited, that they're now being aggressive. When you were talking about the prevention model, mm -hmm. what, can you explain how that, that would work here in the setting, especially in light when you were talking particularly about how communication is all funneled through one person. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest issues, and it's all over the hospitality industry, but specifically in New Orleans, um, the front of the house and the back of the house works work very separately. And I actually think that this reinforces um, abusive patterns. Because generally, when you, I've got been paid to go into businesses and basically diagnose issues, right? So a company will say, we've been having issues with retention or this, and we can't figure out why. And I'll go and I'll work, walk through their business, and a lot of times I don't even tell them that I'm showing up, you know? And I just kind of walk through their business, I take down notes, and then when I convene with the owner, what I've mostly found is that if someone has an abusive pattern in back of the house, they most certainly have also generally extended that to front of the house and also vice versa. But because of the lack of communication, what happens is that people are isolated. I hate to harp on this, but I'm gonna use the example, I'm gonna use an example of specifically um, kitchens where a lot of immigrants work and there is a language barrier. Hmm. Um, what you find is that they are, they are doubly isolated, right, because um, the hours that they work aren't congruent with the hours that everybody else in the space works. Um, they generally speak another language. And also, they are dealing with implicit biases of what their value is and worth is because they are an immigrant. And coupled with that, they are generally in entry-level positions like dishwasher and prep where servers, bartenders in front of the house have not been stated that you need to treat these people as equals. Because, you know, we could go right now, we could walk outside of here, and we could walk into every restaurant, we could ask the bartender, do you know everybody's name in back of the house? 
And I assure you that most people would be like, cool, they can name all of their chefs, and then you'd be like, cool, who's your prep person? I guarantee you at least half of them would stutter and be like, uh, 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 and why is that? Why is the person who literally works the job that is foundational to making sure your service is successful, you don't even know their names? And that's part of the dehumanization. That's the start of dehumanizing somebody when you don't know their name. Yeah. Um, so prevention models that I do is, are things that pair people, basically collaborative ways to communicate, right? So why is it that the manager, there's, you have one manager on the floor on a Thursday, why is that the person that everything needs to be cleared through when something goes wrong or something feels uncomfortable? Right? Why is a bartender who's like, I have a guy who's being a little weird with some other guests, with some women guests, I don't know, just his energy or the things he's saying, I can tell they're making it uncomfortable. Why do they need to wait for a manager? If you've properly trained your staff, why are they waiting for you to alert you to an issue with a guest when what it really should be is, why is, haven't they alerted the rest of the staff and experience? So when I worked here, um, one of the things that we have is there's obviously multiple outlets, right? So someone would act a fool in my outlet and then they would just try to go to another one's outlet and they, in the, it doesn't mean that the issue stops because the person leaves your bar, right? And so what happens when instead of my staff, I used to tell my staff all the time, why are you waiting me for me to get here to tell me a story about this guy cussing out this woman and you feel like it was disrespectful or created, and I wanna say very clearly that cussing somebody else is a form of violence, it's a form of verbal violence, and it is threatening. You are stating that you are about to, you are giving monikers that you are gonna put somebody in physical harm, right? And so I have a zero policy like when it comes to that. And I would be like, why are you telling me? And they'd be like, well, you know, you need to tell the other manager. It's like, no, your bar back, who has the mobility to move through the restaurant, needs to go tell the bar back at the other bar because they also have the mobility. And why isn't that in spaces like this, we don't have those people who have the mobility who go in the back of the house to get ice, who go to the thing. Why aren't they, why aren't you empowering them to be your communicators? So in a preventionist model then, there would there's, be that I mean, level it, there's, of... Yeah, I mean, it changes. I mean, the models that I build, I generally build them directly for the business, but it's about taking communicate, um, communicative models out of hierarchical models and into patterns, yeah. right? So where there's multiple people who can be accessed to communicate to, to disseminate that conversation or that language or whatever needs to know. Okay, so you, you 86 a dish, right? So something's ran out in the restaurant. You don't go and wait for a manager and tell, well, maybe you do, but that was probably super ineffective. You know, to tell the staff that's 86 a, a pasta, right? Yeah. You know, you go, you tell whoever's the person you see, you have them spread it. So what I do is I create models where I try to create language that doesn't disrupt the guest experience. There is no reason why a guest should be alerted that table 36 and needs to leave, right? And we don't need to say table 36, we don't need a table thing. There are certain ways. So I create language like for one bar, we name them all cocktails. They're not on the menu, but when the staff hears these cocktail names, they're alerted of what level and what grade the issue is and who it needs to, the information needs to be disseminated to first. And it allows the bartender, if they feel like it, or the server, if they feel like an issue may escalate, to not cause attention to the guests and also not disrupt everybody else around. Especially if you're talking about you need to bring in outside, like a police or somebody else, you wanna make sure you're not escalating the situation before that even happens. 
listen to you explain that, I, I now understand the analogy you're making of how a lot of spaces are set up like military leadership. Because like listening to you explain all that, it's like it's, it sounds very similar to the way that you can explain how the same sort of culture of abuse has been pervasive in the military, specifically when you were talking about um, particularly for like women and people of color, the, this and the idea, queer community, this this idea that you just have to sort of like take it, no matter what it is, to have any hope of advancing. Because I remember, like, I don't have any experience in the hospitality industry, but my dad was in the military, and like, listen to him talk about his, the stories of like being a black man and being an immigrant black man in the military in the '80s, trying to advance, and the stuff that he put up with just to get to where he ended up getting. It, it's it's starting to like, it resonates really well. Well, it's the same thing in the hospitality industry, and what's so interesting is when we talk about abuse, <clears throat> we often don't talk about bullies, and we often don't talk about how bullies are a product of communal neglect. <laughs> no one becomes a bully in an isolated sense. They become a bully because multiple people have either not spoken to them directly about how they've been treated or bystanders who've watched their behavior not spoken to them about their behavior. And I just want to be clear, as somebody who's been in this industry for 10 years, at some point, I have been a part of hazing cultures and a bully. And I think that that's the issue that everybody in our industry is having, is talking about their own complicitness mm. and abuse cycles. And the fact of the matter is, is this doesn't make you a bad person. Right? We need to take the good and the bad narrative out of this because this isn't about good or bad. This is about humans. And we have the capacity for each, you know, the spectrum of it. The conversation, though, is when are we going to hold ourselves accountable for how many times we've watched behavior that has made us uncomfortable and still not said anything? And I think the issue is that people think it has to be these grand gestures. Like, people think that they need to see someone hit someone or curse at someone for them to say something. But, you know, maybe it's, I just had a conversation with one of my guy friends, and he's like, been in the industry for 20 years. And he's like, there was this guy, and he kept rubbing this girl at the bar's back. Like, they seemed like they were cool. I didn't know if they were together. And I was like, so why didn't you just ask? You ask people what type of drink they want, how their nights go. Why did you not just ask? He goes, well, I didn't want to make it weird. And I was like, for who? you or them and I think the one of the biggest issues is so many people are more concerned with not making something uncomfortable than they are with making sure spaces are safe and the fact of the matter is is not everything has to be uncomfortable right like you can walk up to somebody and be like hey girl how's your night you know him like maybe everybody wouldn't do that but I would do it like that and you know if they do it like yeah <laughs> I laugh and you'd be like okay just making sure you know, throw the stranger danger if you need to, girl. You know, like you can make it a funny thing or read their body language. And then he said that later in the evening, his hostess came to him and was like, that girl's not with that guy. You know what I mean? She, to she told me in the bathroom she wants to leave, but she doesn't want that guy to try to come with her. Mm -hmm. And I said to my friend, how many drinks had you served them? You served three drinks and you watched that woman be uncomfortable for three drinks because you didn't want to ask a simple question. And that was your prevention right there. A simple, how are you doing? And you could have totally navigated that in a way that was like, you can also easily be, the great thing about the bartender is you can be everybody's friend. You could be everybody's friend. You could certainly look at her tab, run her thing, look at her card, find out her name and be like, Alyssa, how are you doing tonight? Blah, blah, my other friends are sitting over here. Come sit with my friends. They don't have to be your friends, sit them next to your regulars. 
Like, you know, you have the power of that, and I just think that so often we disempower our staff to believe that they have no power. Um, and that work, that some of that has to do with the way communication works. Some of that has to do with the way that we don't allow them to have ownership. And some of that has to do with the fact that we don't put resources into how we train our staff. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a coupled conversation, but I think, you know, bullies is a big conversation. And then I think the next conversation is about implicit bias, right? Sometimes that aren't even implicit. They're just biases, you know, but I think implicit biases are real. And I think that every single person who is in leadership, if you are listening to this and you're in leadership, whether you're in hospitality or not, I really empower you to go to the Harvard Institute implicit bias test or the Kerwin Institute and you take that test. Um, you don't need to share it with anybody, but if we don't recognize where we drop the ball because of our unconscious biases, we can't do anything. And I hear a lot of people say, I really want to hire from a diverse standpoint. And then I go, cool, so what are you doing to make that, make that a reality? Or make it a space that those people can actually flourish in. Yeah, and, ha and, and here's the thing. I will tell everybody right now, and you know, if anybody's ever heard me talk before, they know this is really true. I can't stand the word diversity. Um, just like I can't stand the word minority. They're both deficient languages. And I think like everybody really needs to be very clear that like language has so much power. When you um, refer to people, whether it be people of color or queer identified people, and you erase them and you call minorities, you take away their agency, but you also couple all of their problems as if they aren't unique and indiv indiv individualistic issues, right? Like intersectionality is a thing. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I went this far and I just said that word. Yeah. I'm, very, <laughs> I'm very proud of myself. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was just like- 40 uh, minutes in. 40 minutes in and I just said that word. Um, but I think that, I just lost my train of thought. Let me back up. Okay, no. So I think that it's really about understanding where those biases lay so that you don't just couple people all together, right? When I tell, when people tell me that they wanna hire from a diverse standpoint, I'm like, who do you wanna hire? Well, you know, no, I don't know. <laughs> so who do you wanna hire? Is, does that mean women? Does that mean immigrants? Does that mean poor people? Does that mean older people, right? Because let's not act like ageism is an also an issue especially for women in our industry, the idea that you tap out at a certain age, right, as a woman. Um, what does that mean? And then they all of a sudden go, oh. And then I go, and then they'll tell me, they'll come back to me and I'm like, okay, so I put out these ads, but I didn't really get anybody who was qualified. Yeah. And I just wanna say, if you, there's only two reasons why you can't have an inclusive um, business, and it stems from two things. Either the people literally don't live in your city, so you must live in Seattle, <laughs> or... <laughs> so real, or, so real. I, or sorry. So real. so real. Or Portland. <laughs> or Portland. We'll just say the whole PNW. How right, about okay. that? Yeah. Or you have a limited network. Like, to hire from an inclusive standpoint requires intimacy with the people that you're trying to hire. And the I hear over and over and over, specifically from white people, well, you know, I reached out to my one black friend. And you I'm just like, 
okay, when you are looking for other people, do you just reach out to your one white friend or do you send it to like 10, 15, or 20? And I'm not saying that that means you have to have more intimate friends, but it does mean that you have to do the work to expand your network. I purposely go out of my way to go into spaces that I wouldn't normally go to so that I can make connections to those spaces so that when people ask me about who could we reach out to this for this, I can make a suggestion. Um, and people might think that that's too much work, but I don't think it is. That's, talk, that's, that's called being a part of your community and that's a part of community accountability, um, which is a whole nother conversation. If you're tuning in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIVLP. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary. That's Kenny Francis. And you've been, we have been... Uh, Being educated. Yes, That's schooled. <laughs> by uh, Miss uh, Ashton Berry, who is a hospitality activist and preventionist. And, and I just want you to continue just talking. Um, why don't we go to the next question? Because I feel like I could stay on that forever. Uh, the only thing I want to wrap up for people who are listening and they're like... I want to change, I know that I have implicit biases, is that these things don't happen overnight, in a day, in a week, in a year, okay? So make some realistic, don't set yourself up for failure for you to say, I tried and it didn't work. Make something realistic, make something small. Do you know even the other businesses in your community, even if they aren't at the same class scale as you? Like, do you go to your corner store? Like, do you talk to them? Because I bet you that's a whole network of people and resources that you could have and you could access. So, you know, just make sure that when you think about that, I think a lot of things in New Orleans are also compounded with class. Um, so when people have these conversations, they're like, oh, they think about it and they're like, but no one in my network has this. And it's like, yeah, but is everybody in your network in the same pay bracket? Because we also need to talk about the fact that New Orleans is a very poor city. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that there aren't talented people just because they're not in your class. And that's a conversation about value systems. Okay. Absolutely. Um, as we start to sort of round the corner here uh, with about 10 minutes left, I wanna- Oh, I'm sorry. No, I no, no, so much. no, this is amazing. Um, I do, I think an interesting part of the conversation that you and I have started to have off air is switching sort of from the leadership of these spaces to as a consumer, given that like most of us listening to this and engaging in this aren't you know, managers of a restaurant right. or of a hotel. As a consumer, what is our responsibility for, like how, how can we affect change this or what sort of influence can we have? What is our responsibility? I mean, if you truly believe in survivors, you could stop supporting best restaurants. Hey, hey, hey. I mean, you know, I'm just gonna go ahead and say it because like that's why I'm considered radical. Like you don't get to tell me that you care about women, but you just can't miss that Luke happy hour. Couldn't agree with you more, yeah. I like yeah. the Luke Happy Hour too. I ain't been there. I ain't been there in two years. It sucks. <laughs> Somebody also needs to come up on that special too, though. So that, <laughs> like, you know, but like, it is. It, it does. It sucks. But you don't get to say one thing. Like, and if I want to say anything, your if your intention and your impact don't match, you need to go revisit what you're doing. Because the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right, so I am no longer interested in people who say they want to be allies. I'm no, I'm no longer interested in what your intentions are. I'm interested in what you are doing, and you will make mistakes, and that's fine, but I'm interested in the actual work you are trying to do to make changes, and that starts with supporting businesses, even if it's so simple as I support women-owned businesses. There are enough of them here. Go and support them. I 
support businesses where their staff looks happy. Trust me, you could tell a happy staff. You could tell a staff that's being treated well and ask them, how do you enjoy working here? Is it good? Is it thing? People who are a staff will be like, I love working here. They won't lie to you. It starts by going to support businesses that maybe don't have all the infrastructures you love, mm -hmm. like the perfect cocktail, but recognizing that they are trying to have equitable businesses. Because you have to give your dollars to them because how are they gonna get the infrastructure if you don't support them financially? Absolutely. The fact of the matter is the cars are stacked for small business owners, women owners, and people of color owners in this city. Not, it, you could even have money and it's still stacked against you. So, you know, that's the first way that you can start. Do your research. You know, Google is a powerful thing and we all have it on our phone. You look up a restaurant, it takes two seconds to look up something and see if an article comes up. If an article comes up and you're like, ooh, I don't know about that. You know, maybe not visit that place until you do a little bit more research. I don't know if that makes sense, yeah. but I, I think that that's that. I also think that in New Orleans, and this goes out to all of my people who work in hospitality, this city, and I, for, you know, I didn't tell a lot about my background, but I have worked in hospitality for 10 years, and I have done it in every corner of the USA and abroad. So when I say this, I don't say this lightly. And as someone from Chicago, I also do not say this lightly. The hospitality industry here is severely fragmented. And if we don't figure out a way to unify so that we can get more resources, it is not a sustainable option for this city. And I just need everybody to get that. That, you know, regardless of what your little petty differences are or what you think, or, you know, I shouldn't call them petty, but I think a lot of them are about chef egos in this city. You need to get past them. Because if we wanna see this city, go, city grow, it requires that everybody with access with tools, with skill sets, bond together to get the things that we need. And, that, and not just on a social level, on a political level, on a legislative level. Because one of the issues that we also have, which we don't have time to go into, is how much legislation is stacked against us as well, which makes it even harder to do the right thing. But you know, one business owner can't do that by themselves, even if they are Emerald Lagasse which that's a whole nother conversation. Because <laughs> y'all saw that article talk about when they were like, what's his place? Bourbon, beer, booty, it's BB something. It's BB something, y'all. It's got three Bs in it. Boudin, bourbon, and beer is what it's called. And they were like, Boudin, bourbon, and beer doesn't have, they have one person of color one black chef, and they're like, da, da, da. and I'm like, but where in Emerald Lagasse's past have you seen him? I mean, like, let's be really, really honest. I wanna say that I am grateful to the chefs who work with communities of colors to help disenfranchise people, I'm using air quotations, because those things are wrong. But if all your work with equity has to do with charity, you need to talk about that, and you need to unpack that shit too. Ooh, uh, stuff. <laughs> um, um, but you need to unpack that too. This is why they don't let me on the radio. I'm so sorry, guys. But like, you need I, to- I personally love it. You need, to, um, you need to unpack that, because if you, if you, New Orleans is 60.5% black. It is another 6% Hispanic. It is then around 3% Vietnamese or other Asian descent. This is a city of people of color. It is also predominantly women. So I got an issue if the fact that you think the only reason way you can help people 
is I, I wrote a check. When you could actually, because the fact of the matter is, is Emerald Lagasse, you have no excuse. You have, damn, why am I making more enemies? But you have no, but you, you have no, I, I am my mother's child. You do, you have no excuse. You just yeah. have no excuse, Emerald. Like, there is no excuse for that. Because the fact of the matter is, is that's a conversation about why isn't there any access to leadership in your company? Because black people certainly work for you as dishwasher and line cook and everything else, and as your prep cooks. But how many managers are there? How many managers are there? And why is that? And why haven't you invested in them? And that conversation expands across most of the chain places here. And you know, we can say that, well, it's because of this, or it's because of that, or it's because of this. But the fact of the matter is, is that we choose every single day to invest in people for different reasons. You can choose to invest in people for this reason. Absolutely. And if you're not choosing to do that, then just be honest about that so people can go to the spaces that do want to invest and in And the rest of it is just performative. I, I yes, think that's also shameful plug. I yeah. also am trying to address this issue um, next year applications will be out right at the top of the year but in the spring um, there is a project that I'm launching called the Cooks Club and each week a different line cook who applies will cook a meal under the tutelage of a mentoring chef um, we will get them a head shop and we will give them some tools and the idea is give them the ability to create an entire meal so that they can show and they can also get used to the process of what it means to submit dishes to their chefs because that is a part of leadership and they can understand what the pricing looks like and they can understand what the language on the menu looks like and they can understand why that needs to work with the beverage cost of the front of the house um and one of the reasons why i chose to come up come up with this i just don't want people out here thinking like this girl is like all about the people i am like 99 percent but um <laughs> The 1% was that I wanted to open a restaurant here and I had my little investors already and I literally looked around and was like, if I wanted to hire a chef with man manager like experience, I would have to poach somebody or import somebody. And I was like, and if I wanted to hire somebody who was a woman, a person of color, that would be even harder. And I was just like, that's really sad and I'm not interested in opening a space where I don't even have the option. Yeah. So is, there, is, there a place, is there a place that people can go and learn more about that? Um, if you follow me on Instagram, another shameless plug, at the collect, so the C O L L E C T R E S S, the collectress, um, there's information there. Um, you can also follow at radical exchange, which is going to take out the E, it's an X. Um, yeah, and there'll be more to come. I, my website is launching in a couple of weeks. It's just my name, Ashton Berry, Ashton with an I. Not with an O, berry like the fruit. Dot. Com. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure. Um, and, then, and then applications will be available. Because I, I think that's really exciting, yeah, and I would love yeah, to have you I mean, come I don't want to give an exact date, talk about that. but yes, applications will be going live in the new year. I'm finishing putting the board together now, um, solidifying who are going to be the mentoring chefs. But I think that this is a really important step, and I don't think it's going to solve everything, but I think it does two things. It allows chefs in the city to see who's hungry and who's trying to get there and just hasn't had the opportunity. Um, and it allows people who are just on the cusp of being in that leadership role, it allows them to really showcase and like shine um, on a platform that's just for them. You, you called out a couple of, uh, of some of the bad ones. Are there some examples off the top of your head that... Bad ones? Well, I mean, you, you call, you have oh a bad example. Oh, my gosh, why are you trying to get me in trouble? I, I'm sorry. You also sort of missed the point. How about some positives? It's not about, like, bad... As you said, it's not about good and bad. It's about what are the behaviors that you are solidifying 
yeah. or changing. And, and I and I and, and the Cooks Club is a basically an experiment, right? Like it's built to basically be like we might not get everything right. As a matter of fact, we might only get about seventy five percent of it right. But that's okay because this is a learning incubator. And if no one does this, we can't grow as a community. And we can't tear down a lot of the issues that we have. I think what Morgana was trying to ask just poorly. <laughs> oh, I'm confused. Are there any examples that you can think of that people are trying? Yeah, there are models that are Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That are positives. Um, I mean, Coquette, Chef Kristen Essig, and Michael, I think that they try really, really hard to be active in their community. They do regular work with Liberty's Kitchen. Um, no one really quits there, so it's hard to say that they try to hire people. You know what I mean? It's a good job. But they attempt to, and they really try. They do externships, um, which I think it's great. Um, and I guess, like, what is, what is tangible? I think the thing that I've been trying to think about is, like, what is tangibly different there? Like, when you... I mean, I think it's about, that's a conversation about culture. Um, and that's a conversation about where chefs are are understanding that it works from, it starts with them as the owners and it starts with the culture that they wanna create. And I could just say personally that I know that Kristen and Michael have done a lot of personal work to change the culture of their business. And that's, that's, what, that's, that's what it requires, you know. Um, I would say Leah Richard at Willa Jean, she's the GM of Willa Jean, is magnificent. I mean, that used to be a predominantly white space from the workers to everybody who dined there. And over the course of a year and a half, she's changed that drastically. And that's a conversation, again, about culture. Um, and that's a conversation about being willing to learn, too, of being saying, saying to your staff, hey, I might not get this right. I've never actually had to deal with this on a regular basis, so there may be some things that I get wrong, but I'm asking that you be gracious with my learning curve as, I be, as I'm gracious with your learning curve. You know, emotional intelligence still has a learning curve, just like te technical skills. So we just need to, it, it just needs to be a give and take. It's no different than any negotiation of a contract. It's just a social contract. Is there uh, anybody here that has any questions? Yeah, we have or? like five minutes, so I yeah. want to give folks a chance. If you have a question. Right, if you have any questions, questions. Otherwise, we are in the process of going to start wrapping up here. I, I, I am going to say that we definitely need to have you back on air. The beginning uh, of our series. And, uh, <laughs> and really unpack a lot of the things. I, I mean, you really just provided, I mean, there's a lot for me to sit down and think about. I hope everybody understood it who's listening. I'm sorry, I kind of go... Yeah, and uh, I think we didn't even get through half of our questions. No, we did not. But I, so if you, if you can promise us uh, an opportunity to. Absolutely. Um, is there anybody here that has any questions here at, uh, at the Three Keys room at the Ace Hotel? Can, can we, there's a microphone Come right on. up here. The room is crowded for those that are on the radio. I just want to keep <laughs> that up. I have two questions. One was uh, the S word, one of the seven. Yes, okay. <laughs> and we don't need to go back to that. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> no, the second, um, you had spoken about sort of the militaristic communication model with one person at the top. Um, I feel like a lot of hospitality now is um, built around curation, which generally works best with one person at the top. So if you just, you know, um, I guess I have a question, but how, do you, how, do, how, do, how does someone at the top balance those two? What do you mean by, um, I just want to know what your definition of curation is, what you so, mean? What, what yeah, so a lot, of, um, a lot of dining experiences now are curated experiences where one person picks out 
the font on the website and, and the fork and the knife and the food and the color of the, you know what I mean? So it's, it's sort of one person, it tends to be a lot of times one person's creative outlet. So how do you balance, um, you know, uh, both problems, like you're talking about coming through that person and then also this person makes all the decisions for the experience, yeah. Um, I think that, thank you for that question, that's a great question. That's a good question. Um, I think that one of those and <clears throat> things is that people at the top need to be open, they need to pick and choose their battles on what they can collaborate on. Um, giving your staff ownership of little simple things, even if it's the language on a website, right, can be really, really powerful. Um, I'll go back to when I worked here, the staff really wanted there to be something on the menu that like had like a little blurb. You know, it was really important to them. And higher up just kept saying no, no, no. And then finally in the meeting I was like, what does it hurt us to let them have ownership of this? Right, like what, what does it hurt us? And I think it's really important about picking and choosing those battles. Um, I think it's also about sharing your vision. How many chef owners have a vision and just assume everybody in their space explicitly understands their vision the way that they do. And I, most, most chefs never do explain it, right? They're like, this is the type of food we're cooking, da 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 da, and then they're done, right? But like, what's the full vision? What's the things behind it? What's the layered idea of what this means for our culture? And I, I just want to also say a lot of hospitality and um, spaces, specifically restaurant bars, um, don't tell their staff their mission statement and they don't refer back to it. And I think it's really important, like they give it to them in an employee handbook, but then it's gone. Um, your mission statement should be the first place that you obstruct abuse and should be the place that you keep coming back to when you're confused as to why something is happening in your space. Um, and if you haven't explicitly stated that abuse is not acceptable in your space, you are basically stating that you are okay that if it, that it will happen. Because the fact of the matter is, is that it doesn't matter, you can go to any bar, even if they've been open 60 years, they've had some type of major incident or something, even if no one else knows about it, that's happened in their space. Um, and that's just a, that's about context clues. No one's saying that you have to have a huge thing that says no sexism, no racism, da da da. But there's little things that you can do, like there's a bar in San Francisco, social light club that has a thing that says consent is sexy. Without saying anything else, they've already told you what isn't okay in their space. Mm -hmm. And there's little ways that you can do that through menu, through language, that are indicators to people what we do care about and what we do value and how we do want people to act in our space. And that already prevents you even having to have a conversation because the people who are gonna apply for your space are generally gonna see those, pick up on those cues and apply because they, they wanna be a part of that. But I think in terms of things, I think people on top assume that people who work for them understand what they want and what their vision looks like. And I don't think a lot of times they're explicit about it, even in the terms of language that they want people to greet guests with. They just make an assumption that like, oh, I had it like this in my head, so everybody will do it like this. And it's like, no, you have to, you have to share what that feels like to people. At Tokyo Record Bar, we had to explain to people that this is a 22-seat room, and we want people to feel like this is a living room, but these are bougie New Yorkers, so they're gonna be funny acting. 
And so we need to break that at the beginning. So how do you break that at the beginning? You give them a speech. Welcome to Tokyo Record Bar. It's 22 seats. Get to know your neighbor. You level set them on how you want them to behave in the space and, and then empower your staff to have the power to say, we are telling you how we want you to act in this space in this very loving and gracious way. And that's something that it doesn't need to be the owner or the manager to own. So I think it's, it's about letting a, a go a little bit of that power and it's about having accountability models that support that so that you don't, aren't stressed out about it. I can't tell you this, I just got contracted to come back and work, I worked with one restaurant and they have five other restaurants and they are contracting me to come back and work with them because their managers are now less stressed now that they have a communication pattern and now that they've empowered their staff. They're not babysitting anymore. Let me uh, just step in I'm real sorry. quick. You're fine. Uh, if you're tuning in, uh, this has been Resistance Radio. Thank you so much, uh, Kenny Francis. I'm Mark Allendary, Miss Ashton. Thank you so very much. Thank you to the Three Keys Hotel. Can I get a round of applause? Thank you. Coming up next uh, it, uh, over at WHIV, you guys can tune this out. We're going to continue the conversation here, but we're going to uh, not do that live. Uh, Mark parody uh, with Mega Music Monday is coming up. Uh, thank you guys so much. So, um, can, so our, at WHIV, our mission statement is advocacy through innovative messaging. So we say that's AIM. What's your mission statement? Um, are, hospitality people, professionals, are at the front line of human interaction. So it is essential that we be intersectional in all things that we do. There it is. It came up twice in one hour. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Thank um, you so much, Ashley. But, but I mean that. I mean yeah, that from your Starbucks absolutely. person to the thing. Think about if we all behaved in a way that was conscious of our biases, that was conscious of our language. From the person you get your coffee to to the person you buy your groceries to to the thing, we are at the front lines of human interaction. And if we all chose to shift in a way, we could generally, we could literally shift our communities. Very, very easily. I 100% agree with you. 100% agree with you. If you guys have more questions, do you have do you have more yeah, time or yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you were pushing away your microphone? Oh, okay. I didn't know we're, if we needed that. We're off air. We're off air. But this is conversation. Right. If if y'all are wow. interested, I mean, this has been a really amazing conversation. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. I'm sorry. I didn't do <laughs> yeah, that's all right. That's. Uh, <laughs> Like Kenny says, he's happy to pay the FCC fine. No, so. I, I do not pay the FCC fine. I do not. Uh, if not, then I'm sure we should equitably pay I, I'm that. Sure Ms. I'm sure Miss Sonali would be happy to. Um, we've been talking about um, infrastructure and about businesses. And I'm actually kind of curious, just if you do any training about how to treat staff, just because this gentleman had asked you. Sorry, not staff. Uh, patrons, guests mm -hmm. at restaurants. Oh. When you had asked. Uh, Ashton about hospitality, I was thinking a little bit in the Danny Meyer school of sort of how we treat people whom are guests and how we sort of build, you know, a rapport with our guests and understand them better and treat them better and so forth. And I'm sort of curious how you feel like the infrastructure actually leads into how we treat guests. Because as a, as a white cis man, gay or not, whatever it is, I often find myself being uncomfortable in environments where other people aren't being treated as equals to myself. And I wonder sort of where that comes into training when we're talking about the big you know, diversity and these words, not a word you like, which I'm actually yeah. curious, what's a better word? But um, but the, that was interesting as well, we can talk about that separately. But just how we treat our patrons feels like maybe something that's not talked about enough with regards to intersectionality and these other things. 
Well, I think that goes again back to culture, right? It goes back to culture and who, how many of you work in hospitality directly? Yeah, everybody? Who's, uh, who's like lead staff? Who's lead staff at their places? Raise them up, why y'all being so scary, damn. Okay, um, so I, I think that that's a conversation about culture. How many of you on lead staff know, have decided or have had a conversation with ownership or whoever is your superior about who you want your guests to be? Okay, awesome. Um, I think that that's a really important conversation and I think that that's a conversation that's generally not had with entry level staff, especially on the floor about who is it that we want our guests to be. I think a lot of times we use words that we want diversity, that we want inclusive spaces, and at the same time put dress codes on bars that directly inhibit that. Mm -hmm. Or we put dress codes on our staff that directly inhibit that, right? Um, and so when we're talking about how we treat, I think it's really diff difficult to have inclusive spaces when there's no point of access so if you walk by a space and every time you walk by it, all you see is straight people, right? And you're a queer person and all you see is this like really overly bro heterosexual space, the chances of you walking in that space are probably extremely limited. The same thing as a woman, the same thing as a person of color. And that's not because that space might not be interesting. That's because that's a survival tactic. What you've learned over time is that those spaces may not be comfortable or they could be actually unsafe for you. So one of the ways that we change the way patrons engage is to change the staff that we hire, right? A staff person who is extremely bigoted and sees a whole bunch of non-binary people or queer or they, is not gonna be like, let me go up in there. They're gonna be like, I'll pass. And that's perfectly fine. But it's about making those decisions about if that's who you want in your space. And this is, this is also the thing that I get a lot of times with owners about patrons is like, well, that's who has the money. And that's a big conversation in New Orleans is that black people don't have money, that poor people don't have money, that young millennials don't have money. And I'm just like, it's actually just not true. Like, it's not true. Um, so if, you, if you're holding on to that, you're holding on to that because that's ultimately who you want as your guest. Not because other people can't, don't have the ability to spend money in your space. And so to ask your questions, no, I have never done training with patrons. Um, I do write for Chef's Feed. My, my first article came out a couple of weeks ago. My next article is about to come out. And it basically just touches on issues in the hospitality industry while talking to hospitality professionals. And that's my kind of way of trying to get people to understand more intimately the way the business works and why it's important to kind of like understand language and how they treat people. But I think another issue is that, you know, Danny Meyer, I read his books, have a lot of respect for him. Charlie Trotter, have a lot of respect for him. James Beard, have a lot of respect. But when are we gonna have a more nuanced conversation that the way that they carry out business, they are white heterosexual men. And then when are we gonna talk about the fact that James Beard implemented all these things to contrast his overcom overcompensation for being gay? Like, when are we really gonna have that conversation? Right? About the fact that here is this man who instituted and overcompensated with these militaristic patterns because of the questioning of his sexuality. He understood how that worked against him in the kitchen. You know, and, 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 it's, and, it's, a, and it's a difficult and it's a hard thing, but I think that 
I love Danny Meyer. I've eaten at his restaurants. And I think he's super supportive of women chefs, but not in a way that changes the culture. He's not teaching them how they are can be different from him. He's just helping them elevate. And I think that that's the, that's the shift in the conversation. And we also just need to own that hospitality doesn't have to look one way, right? And it doesn't need to look like what it looks like in a Michelin star or a white tablecloth place or thing. There are different modes of hospitality and different people want hospitality. The question is, is your business equitable and is it physically responsible? That should be the only concern. You know, when I was in New York and people were telling me and Ariel Arcee, who's the owner of Tokyo Record Bar and Champagne Parlor, mind you, we were 29 when we opened those businesses. We both just turned, well, she turned 30 last year, I turned 30 this year. We were 20, basically, I was 28 when we started this, when we started talking about this. And men were like, it's not gonna work. This isn't the way you do hospitality. You guys aren't getting any write-ups because this is what hospitality looks like, right? That was what they told us. Now, if we weren't knuckleheads who just really didn't care what old men thought about us, <laughs> we might have not have did it, but we really didn't care what men thought about us, which is why we sold champagne at retail price. And people also told us that wasn't a business model that was gonna work, right? And it's about making sure that you understand, and this is like, I wish we were still on air, but young entrepreneurs have to know that if you wanna be successful and you are not white and male or cis, you know what I mean, or heterosexual, even if you're a white woman, if you continue to play into the system that they're there, at some point they're going to tell you what the ceiling is. They are gonna define your ceiling. One of the reasons why some people are really pissed at me is because I have always done it my own way and people have consistently told me in my career that I wouldn't be successful. And now that I am successful, they're pissed because no one can stake claim. <laughs> because no one has account, like I get to basically go off the hook because I'm like, remember, I asked you for that job. You didn't want to give it to me. Like, you know, and, 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 and that's part of the thing. But I think in terms of patrons, I think it's really about a, them really, what happened to, and this is a lost art of hospitality that I do think is a lost art, and I do respect Charlie Trotter for, what happened to us looking at hospitality as a part of community? And what happened to us reaching out to our guests as if they are a part of our community? And that's what we've lost. I see people in the city who think that they give service, and it's so transactional, and it's so cold. When someone's a part of your community, there has to be a mutual respect because it's, there's a humanization in that. There's a respect, there's an acknowledgement of that. We are both people. I don't know, did I just go, okay, I'm sorry, I'm done. I hope that <laughs> no. answered. I think I like went off on a little and thing. And you can curse too right now. <laughs> no, please, like, please keep going. I mean, I, I just, I'm sure you noticed, both of us are like, we're just gonna get out of her way. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is, yeah, uh, so that's, I mean, I hope that that's helpful, but yeah, I mean, I think patrons, can start asking employees how they feel, if they like their job. How many of you guys see people at the bar after work? Or You know what I mean? Ask them how they feel about their jobs. Actually like it, and if they're excited about it, keep going back and supporting that place because they're doing something fucking right. What about, one last question. What, what about the future? How can we, how can moving forward? I mean, um, the future. The future of hospitality, the future, yeah, the future of, of like, hospitality, future of equity and hospitality. I mean the future it, of hospitality, if if the powers that be who are there now decided, the future of hospitality looks like tokenization. It looks like what? Tokenization. 
Yeah. Like, 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 I'm just gonna be really real, real with you. If we allow brands, big corporate brands, and to decide what equity looks like, what what um, looks like in our business, it will look like tokenizing. Yep, I got you. I got that you. is that is what that will so look how like. Do we prevent but that? if small business owners start believing the power that they have, because they have so much power. These small mom and pop places, they don't think that they do, but if they start connecting as a community of small businesses, you have so much more power. I think that the, the future is, um, it's messy, but it's filled with different restaurant models that can be successful. I think it will no longer be a risk to open something that's a little bit different. I, I mean, I hope that's the future of hospitality. I hope the future of hospitality is that rather than stating that it's impossible to open up an equitable or fiscally responsible business that can pay people, the conversation is how can we as community support businesses that are attempting to do that. That's, that's what I hope the future is. Um, did, did you see at the airport that there's one of the uh, coffee shops at the airport uh, mm -hmm. is has a tele? Yeah. You know, you go and you order and you swipe your card. Yeah, I mean. And they're removing, they're starting to remove people from. That's, that's really scary. Yeah. It's at McDonald's now, too. Like in New York City, they're at all the McDonald's. And it's super scary. And I know a lot of people think that it's not a big deal. But we already, five years <laughs> ago, were in a situation where those jobs that young high schoolers were working to work yeah. at McDonald's or something have already been taken away from them. And so now you have older people working on jobs. So what happens now that those jobs aren't available for them either? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, but I, I'm saying I'm saying that almost all of the I'm I'm in, in New York, which it's gonna be a problem here in New Orleans. But when you talk about a city like New York City and how many McDonald's that is and how many things like we're talking about, we're gonna see some real consequences from that. Not in five years, not in ten years. You're talking about two to three years. We're gonna see some severe consequences of that. Um, and because all of the chain restaurants like fast food follow McDonald's leads. Once they implement yeah. something, every single body, every, it just follows, it, they just follow after. So I think there needs to be a conversation of how do small businesses on a local level first support each other so that they can start supporting each other nationally. Yeah. I mean, because I could see an opportunity like where you sit at a booth and there's a computer there or an iPad. There are places you that exist place, like that. Yeah, and you can just place your order right there and swipe and swipe to be done and, and it completely removes that connection. I mean, it not only removes the connection, it takes away so many people's jobs. Yeah. Yes. It also takes away accountability measure. Then you then you actually take out hospitality, right? Because yes. then you just turn everybody into a food and a drink runner. That's exactly right. Where they don't even care about what the experience right. is. Right. And then you have an issue about people saying, well, why should I tip a person who hasn't given me any type of service, even though bringing you your food and a drink is a service? Yeah. It's a really layered thing. I mean, this is why we need to define hospitality. I really don't think that super big chains like McDonald's and Burger King and everything like that should be, they should be their own sect of hospitality because I just think grouping all restaurants and bars with them is really, really dangerous. It's just super dangerous because they are the people who decide legislation. Nationally, they do, which is so scary. I got into that last year and I was just like, oh my God. 
Ms. Ashton Berry, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you, Axel, who made us sound a lot better than we deserve to sound. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Dave Austin, thank you. And thank you to everybody here for joining us. Thank you so much.